0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Live from the campus of the University of
1: Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a special reunion radio edition of Women at Work. Here's your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to our special edition of Women at Work, a weekly show about how we can help more women. Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. It is a very special weekend here on the Penn campus. If you look around, the sun is shining. There are balloons and smiling people. Everybody's taking pictures and hugging and kissing. It's really quite amazing. Part of it is that each of Penn's 12 schools is holding their commencement ceremonies, where we send our newest graduates off into the world. It's also reunion weekend, where alumni are coming back to connect with each other and share what they've learned since leaving Penn and Wharton. So we're lucky to have two of those alumni here today to do just that. Yeah. In our first half hour, we'll be talking with Grace Cruz founder and managing director at Grace Global Capital. And then in our second half, we'll welcome Shaz Kong, experienced CEO, fiction writer, and an agent of change to continue the conversation. Our phones are open. So if you'd like to ask Grace her advice, hear what it's like to climb Annapurna, or just get a little dose of inspiration, or ask any questions, we'd love to have you join in the conversation. Our phones are one open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's it's 844-942-7866, 844-WHARTON, and you can give us a ring. You can also write into Patio because she's there in the booth at the computer, and you can write to Business Radio at SiriusXM.com, and we welcome you to join in the conversation. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about Grace. Grace Cruz's career has been dedicated to a relentless mission of advising her clients in effectively executing growth, strategy, and managing change. Her real purpose is to assist organizations, teams, leaders to realize their highest potential, a recurring theme that I think you'll hear about today, um, by charting a range of possible futures rather than one predetermined outcome. She's the founder and managing director at Grace Global Capital, um, a consulting firm providing MA financial advisory, restructuring, and valuation to insurance executives, boards, and financial regulators since 2006. Throughout Grace's career, she's delivered advisory expertise on over five billion dollars of insurance transactions. She's a board member of SBLI USA and M Financial Group. And super cool is that she's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and the Himalayan in Bhutan, and Everest base camp. She's also a licensed sailor and a Wharton alumna, having earned her MBA in finance in 1994. So, with that, let me say, Grace, welcome home.
0: Laura, thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So you and I had the great pleasure, at least it was my pleasure, that we got to have coffee a little while ago and we were talking about your story, how you and your family came to this country um, and the journey that you went on. And I wonder, especially in the context of thinking about you climbing mountains and sailing, could you tell me about where you started to find your mettle,
0: your tenacity, and the people who inspired you? Absolutely. I'm the second oldest of seven children. In addition, my mom is uh, the second oldest of nine children, but my grandmother and granddad also adopted five young girls who lost their moms. Oh, my goodness. So uh, uh, my grandmother raised 14 children. 14 children. 14, 14, and I'm actually one of 52 grandchildren. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But, Laura, I can assure you, that I was the favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. My grandmother and I had such a special bond, and one of her most treasured words to me were "believe beyond your limits." And even as a young child, hearing "believe you beyond your limits," I did not know what that meant. But as I began to experience life, and I began to uh, work and climb mountains those words have become more and more real to me so i always grew up in an environment where uh they, we were taught to imagine to in, to move beyond any obstacles that may come in your way and just triumph you know so that's the kind of hopeful inspirational environment i i was brought up in that's really incredible
1: it touches my heart cuz i also had a very special relationship with my grandmother yes. and um, her words of wisdom guide me all the time, but I also yes. look back in time because what it meant to say believe beyond your limits to a woman of her generation and in mm-hmm. her circumstances was very different than the way we think about it as educated women in the United States yes. now. So tell me a little bit about when you came to this country yes. and what the reality was for all sure. of you. Sure.
0: So I was born in Guyana, South America. I grew up in a country of the size of Rhode Island, less than a million people. Uh, my parents, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked as, uh, as part of the government of the country. And I, in spite of our humble beginnings, you could not tell me as a child I was poor. I was rich. I was rich in family members around me. I was rich. My aunts and uncles were all always in the house. My parents loved us dearly. And they always inspired us to do better. So I went to Catholic school. And I remember nuns and my uncles and my parents would say, what would you like to be? And I would say many different things. And sometimes I would say just what I, I saw the last woman uh, doing. Like I would say, "What?" at one point I said, I'd like to be a traffic police officer. Or I'd like to be a nun, I would say. So when you saw women in your environment, they mm-hmm. were immediate role models. Immediate role models. And what I remembered was whatever I said, everyone just nodded their heads. So nobody said no. No one said no. No one said you couldn't do it. And so I was raised with such a hope and such a, a wealth of possibilities that I just uh, uh, knew that I was going to uh, be upwardly mobile and do much more than even I could imagine. So when you came to this country, um, how much of
1: that upward mobility... Was um, being carried by education or experience or connections that your family had coming in, or was it really like lots of other immigrants they were really starting from scratch here?
0: Yes, my parents were starting from scratch, although we had fam- we had the benefit of family members being here two decades before we arrived, so we had an infrastructure and f- a- a great family bonds to to begin here. And my parents really stress education, and quite frankly, I was so excited to be going to school in United States. What made you excited about it? I was excited because growing up i it was always a dream my family had that what one day we will come to the United States. And I had family members already here. Some of them would come back to visit us. And I would always ask them for details. And everything about the United States seems exciting to me. I knew it was a bigger country. I knew that I would be attending uh, larger universities with more opportunities. And because I I grew up uh, in a manner in which I had no restrictions as far as my dreams United States was the perfect place for me. It sounds it. And, you know, we
1: know how the story ended, at least to today, and that you've seized that you've built a lot of those dreams and seized them. Mm -hmm. But talk to me about that trajectory of how you leveraged the opportunities that were in front of you Mm -hmm. to position yourself to do the kind of work you're doing now.
0: Sure. So going back to high school, one of the advice that uh, a, a family friend had said to me was that, oh, Grace, high school in the United States is so easy, she said. Uh, you can watch soap opera and do your homework, and you'll be just fine. So that's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> was it and The Edge of Night or General Hospital? It was General Hospital. I knew all about Luke and Laura <laughs> and all the stories. So I'm dating myself here. But... Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I noticed that I was getting uh, in the 70s scores, in the 70s and the 80s, and one day I was walking home from school, from my high school to home, and I, I, I lived in Brooklyn, and I went to Tilden High School. And by the way, Tilden High School is the same high school that Larry King and Al Sharpton went to, just to put some perspective. So as I did my one-mile journey home, I reflected on my day, and I reflected I got these grades that were like 82 or, or 85. And I, said, I thought to myself, what if I really studied I wonder what my grades would be. <laughs> and so it was a, like a conversation a minor... <laughs> I've had with my teenager. <laughs> it was a minor challenge to myself, and I started to really seriously study. I, instead of heading home to to watch operas, I would go to the local library, and I would not only study, but I would read additional books and magazines. And it just created that too opened up the new world for me. And so my grades started just going from. Bs to As. Amazing how that happens. You see, amazing <laughs> how that happens indeed. And the other major inspiration for me was that my mom decided that she would go to school, and she enrolled in a college and started studying nursing. Oh my God! And how many kids did she have? At seven. This- seven children. So she, uh, and she would tell me because the, the the house, as you can imagine, with nine of us was very, very busy. So the best <laughs> time for me to study was to get up at 2 in the morning. So I would go to bed at 8, get up at 2 when it's very quiet. And my mom would say to me, wake me up when you're up. And so she would come to the dining room table and she would study with me. Oh, my goodness. And she and I had such a bond. And I, she, she was such a strength Tara's strength and inspiration for me in a way that I don't think she could possibly imagine. But it's one thing to tell your children, pursue their education. It's another thing to live it while they can see your walking, talking example of what that's like. And that's what my mom was like. So she and she was so happy. She was it opened up a new world. I saw this. I saw her blossom and grew. And she loved studying. She loved the opportunity. she loved talking about sharing the stories of, of the professors and her exams and her grades. that it was quite a bonding experience. So as you can imagine, not just for me, but my entire our entire household and all our, the seven uh, children just knew that education was absolutely the key for us. I'm
1: weepy hearing the story at the thought of the two of you up in the wee hours <laughs> of the morning, but striving together and supporting each, each other, other. Yes. and that seeing, getting faith from one another and mm-hmm. also that you had this living, breathing role model of somebody who was not too old to go back to school, yes, not too busy to try. Yes. No wonder you climb mountains. <laughs> 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 okay, so... With this major shift in your perspective, um, then you're coming out of high school with solid grades.
0: Yes. How, How was college for you? College was wonderful. I went to a high school, just by way of background, when I first entered my high school, I got an aptitude test. And the counselor came out at the end of the day and said, you are going to be in the 10th grade, which is what I expected. And she said, for your major, we recommend one of two things either Spanish or accounting. So I was puzzled by both. I I had done nothing in Spanish. And accounting, I did not know what accounting was. So uh, when I started to think of it, I thought, well, I knew Spanish already. But accounting was a mystery to me. And I, was, I always gravitated towards challenges and learning. <laughs> to, and, to the mystery, you know, Yeah, just the quest to learn more. And I said, I'll do accounting. And I did accounting in high school. And it turned out, Laura, to be as easy as breathing for me. It was just, I just found something I love. And when I took the accounting regents, I got a perfect score, and the head which was a big deal in my house. Yeah, that's school. hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> and the head of my accounting department was also an adjunct professor at Pace University in New York City. And that's that brought my transition to Pace University.
1: You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, and my guest today is the amazing Grace Cruz, founder and managing director of Grace Global Capital. She's a member of Wharton's MBA class of 1994 and joining us for our special reunion radio edition of the show. So, Grace, at this point, you've got an associate professor, he or she... He he. So this teacher saw your talent mm-hmm. and helped build a
0: bridge to Pace mm-hmm. University. Yes. And for people who don't know what Pace is, can you explain where it is and Sure. So Pace University campus is right across the street from City Hall in downtown New York City. And it has one of the best accounting programs in the country. And that's where I went. And so at this point you're doing this courtesy of
1: financial aid and scholarship, I'm presuming? And working. Okay. But it's an amazing thing where you can see the power of education mm-hmm. to fuel a meritocracy. Yes. that it's, And also matched with your own values and drive that you seized this opportunity and just kept running with it. Yes. So I do want to note for the record, because it's, it's, there's so many things in your story that I relate to. I don't live and breathe for accounting, though. <laughs> <laughs> and that it really is amazing that it wasn't just that you were really good at it. You felt it it meant something to you. It it, it was interesting to you and comfortable. Mm -hmm. So talk
0: to me about how you made that journey to go to business school. Sure. After I graduated from Pace University, I worked for EY, and I did auditing for six years. And just about the fifth year, it became monotonous for me. I was going back to the same clients, and my clients loved me, and I loved them. I'm not surprised. But... I wanted more challenge. You know, accounting is a very prescribed set of standards that you follow. And as I learned more about finance and the complexity and having just much more dynamic uh, valuation models that I can learn, and I was just fascinated by Wall Street as well, I looked to go to the best business school to advance medication. Wharton, of Of course. course. And I have to tell you, I still remember the moment I opened the letter. Back then, it was the letter. I opened the letter and got my admissions uh, response saying, You're admitted. I was elated. I mean the world my world was elated. my clients were elated, my family was elated. So. Isn't it amazing how vividly you can remember oh, that moment? I'll never forget
1: it. I had to I went to the Graduate School of Education here at Penn and I remember the moment <laughs> I got my letter and I think I screamed so loudly, my colleagues in the next <laughs> office heard me. But it's like you know, it's not just that affirmation, but for me it meant a whole new door was opening.
0: Absolutely. and I had applied to eight of the top 10 business schools. And I got accepted into seven, waitlisted well, into one. Done. Yes, but I tell you, I can't remember any of the other letters. But I remember Wharton because you wanted Wharton. Yes, I did. So, how did Wharton position you? How did you start your career post MBA? Yes, so I it positioned me even before graduation. So, what's amazing about this campus? is the exposure and access to business leaders, exposure and access to fellow students who've worked in the industry. So first, I started to network with students in my class that worked in Wall Street. And I was taking them out for drinks, and, and I, I, I'm a great cook. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I brought them home to my apartment and just said, tell me more about what you did. And everything they told me and all the advice they give me just confirmed for me that this was an area I'd like to work in. Grace, I want to stop for a moment
1: because I want to shine just a little light on something that you did. Because while you're acknowledging the bounty that was here and the amazing people that were here, it's also testimony to you because a lot of people don't know um, how much you can learn. Mm-hmm. by opening the door, inviting people in, yes. asking questions, and learning from others. Yes. And you don't have to be a great cook. You could even do it with pizza. <laughs> 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 but it sounds like your yes. curiosity is yes.
0: key and your hospitality yes. to connecting with other people. Absolutely. And and uh, much to my delight, they they were as helpful to share their knowledge. And so to be, be my first and second year, I interned at Merrill Lynch. And I have to tell you, I had never worked as hard as I did that summer. That's what I hear. Yes. I pulled uh, In one week, I'd pulled three all-nighters, uh, but I kept going because I also was learning and it, I was fascinated by all so of So were this. you still as excited to put in that energy? I was. I was. I was very much excited to put the energy. And I worked at M- M- Merrill during that summer, had a very successful summer, and got an offer extended to me. So coming back for my second year, it was much more relaxing because I did not have the pressure of thinking where my, where my next step would be after Wharton. I pretty much knew where I wanted to go.
1: And so you were ready to embark on the world as soon as you graduated. Yes. Um, but the way that you started your career— is not where it is now. No. So talk to me about what
0: that first phase of your career was and what led you to found Grace Capital. Sure, so the very first phase of my career, imagine this, it was in 1994 at Merrill Lynch. So when I entered the financial services group, it was as if I was entering a professional frat house. I, I am not surprised.
1: <laughs> it really was. And, and when you say frat house, you mean it wasn't just that it was a lot of white men. No.
0: There was a, a culture there. There was a culture there. And uh, it was uh, it was very difficult to navigate my way through. The, uh, in, in the midst of all of that, I've, one important nugget that came out for me that I still treasure to this day was that I, I noticed that that everyone in the group wanted to work on banks. Now, this is a group that covers banks and insurance companies and finance companies. Everyone avoided the insurance industry. And when I found out why, one of the reasons uh, was that in order to to really cover insurance companies, you have to understand two sets of accounting. Insurance, the insurance industry, has U.S. GAAP, which everyone does have, but it also has U.S. statutory accounting. So many of the many of the bankers didn't want to go the extra step or didn't have the, 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 the accounting background to really learn a second set of accounting. And as I looked at that path less chosen, that became so attractive to me. And I decided I was going to focus on uh, insurance how much of this was because you lo-
1: clearly thrive with a real challenge and how much of it was that the challenge was fundamentally about another dimension of accounting which you said before is like comes to
0: you like breathing yes so i think it was a part it both played a role both you know my quest for uncharted territory and learning new things and and also using my background of accounting in the process
1: so that part all seems perfectly natural. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not news to me that banking, especially then, was a frat house. Yes. What were some of the examples of that kind of culture? What did you have to learn in order to survive it?
0: One of the things I learned was networking, to really learn how to choose mentors, but more importantly, to choose a sponsor. This is an important distinction that too many people don't make. So right. Talk to me about how you sure. figured
1: out that difference.
0: So, uh, a mentor is someone who you can go to and relate stories to, and get their advice, and uh, really incorporate that into your into your path. A sponsor is someone in a position of power and leadership that understands your journey, understands your strengths and weaknesses but also have a voice and a vote at the table that will de- direct your career. It is hard to find a sponsor. Isn't it? It very, it's not an easy thing. Especially in a culture where the way networking is done is like a frat house. Yes, and so if it's done in the golf course and it's done uh, at the bars or in areas where you may not be as comfortable, you are uh, technically excluded. Mm-hmm. And uh so it was uh, it was super difficult for me. And I think p- part of the reasons why I left Merrill Lynch was because of the culture. I got an offer to work at the first private equity fund focused in the insurance industry. What a perfect merger of, oh my goodness. Uh, of
1: uh, topics for you.
0: Yes, and it it was an opportunity that was tremendous. And because it was the first PE fund, we worked on every single transaction in the industry, practically taking companies public, doing private sales. We started partnere, which still exists today. And we had an IRR of 67%. So imagine the opportunity that that gave me. That's enormous. And that part of my
1: career. So what made you decide, though, to go and build your own enterprise?
0: Okay, So right before the financial crisis had occurred, I was working as a managing director at Swiss Re, and for the last three years in my role as managing director, we changed uh, leadership and ownership four times. That's enough to make your head spin. It is enough to make your head spin. You talk about disruption, and uh, I had a long time to think about this. And I'd say the boldest move I've ever made that I've never regretted was starting my own firm. I am so proud of the fact that I took the initiative and that I'm able to really advise clients uh, with a sense of care and a sense of direction without any distraction of politicking and just focus on client and their needs. It's really
1: Amazing to see the journey that you went on and how all of the strengths that you were able to cultivate and identify carried with you. But also, um, I come back to your grandmother's words, to believe beyond your limits. Did
0: you doubt yourself in this process at all? I had moments. I had moments because they will come. It's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) It's impossible not to doubt. But I do think that I have such a strong foundation and such a great network of support, and when I look at the opportunities in the industry of insurance, where we're going through a transition, uh, an innovation, and insurance companies are really taking the initiative to really be more customer centric, I think it's an it's an amazing opportunity. And for me, as a woman, I would advise every single woman that right now. It's the golden opportunity of entrepreneurship. Tell me more. What I mean by that is that many women uh, work in their career paths and they view, them, they view it as being fairly limited. Mm-hmm. And yet they have skills, skill sets and talents that they're not using at work. Why not carve, an, carve our future where we can uh, design a company where you can fulfill all of your talents and your goals and your objectives and entrepreneurship is a perfect way to do it yeah. i think it's it, i think it's no accident that small businesses and entrepreneurships uh, are the fastest growing uh, segment and what in, an
1: enormous percentage of them are, are women. women
0: tremendous because yes. it
1: gives you a way to unleash your talent mm-hmm. pursue your ambitions with no, without being hampered by culture.
0: Yes, yes. And it gives you a chance to create your own culture. Grace, I, I am so delighted.
1: I, it's like I, I'm heartbroken that time is ending. Oh. But thank you so much for joining us you here on welcome. Women at Work. You are welcome. If people want to find out more about your work and where can they find you?
0: At graceglobalcapital.com. Mm. And on Twitter, Grace Global Capital and Grace Van de Cruz as well. Okay. Very excited
1: to welcome my next guest, Shaz Kong, who is another distinguished Wharton alumna. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Shaz, and then we're going to start talking and make the best use of what I think is just going to be too little time to even scratch the surface of all the amazing things she's done. After graduating from Cornell with a BS in food science and chemistry, Shaz began her career as a research scientist for Kraft General Foods. She then earned her MBA in marketing and finance on full scholarship here at Wharton, and Transitioned into strategy and operations consulting. At the global consulting firm Kurt Salman Associates, Shaz became the first female non-Caucasian partner in the firm's 70-year history, not to mention one of the youngest. Shaz was most recently a board director and CEO for Gymboree Group, a troubled company that had to file for bankruptcy twice, and just the latest in a string of high-profile roles at companies that include Nike and Lucy Activewear. She advises PE, VC, and hedge funds on retail, footwear, apparel, and activewear companies, and serves as an advisor to retail apparel startups. This Renaissance woman is also a published author and is currently working on her second novel. So Shaz, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm fascinated by how multidisciplinary you are, and particularly that you started out as a, sci- a serious
2: scientist mm-hmm. and then wound up going to business
1: school. Talk to me about that transition.
2: Uh, well, I really loved science, and I so I studied it in, in college, and I had the intent to make a career out of being a scientist. And uh, the job that I, the first job that I had, I was inventing new product prototypes and packaging for food, and I really enjoyed it. It was, you know, very innovative, really early stage invention. And um, something that I noticed was that we would every, I think, two months, we would put together a list of, you know, 12 to 15 inventions we were working on. We would present it to marketing and then they would select which company or which products to, to invest in and move forward with. And it was curious to me because I thought sometimes the products that they picked weren't the most consumer-focused. So I thought about it, and I said, you know, I actually think that I could make a better choice. So I, I'd like to run a business someday, and I didn't see any scientists running businesses. So uh, I ended up um, going to Wharton for my MBA and, and doing a complete career switch.
1: Yes, right. So you I, now I understand why you went to Wharton, you mm-hmm. know, why you just said, I'm going to take on the business side of it. For many people who pursue science, it's not a thing they do. It's who they are. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being creative. What made you drop the science part and go so heavily into, the, ironically, the marketing part?
2: Uh, well, it wasn't just the marketing part. I think what happened was that I one of the things that propelled me to study science was that I really loved uh, challenges and I really loved solving problems. And I think that is still something that is a consistent skill that I have used throughout my career. Uh, but with science, I just found that the opportunities for upward, you know, upward trajectory were limited. <laughs> and I mean, at that time, I didn't see any female CEOs. I certainly didn't see any, you know, any CEOs who had science backgrounds. And I knew that if I wanted to move into that direction, then I really needed to get an MBA. And the other thing, I actually found a mentor. Uh, at Craft um, Journal Foods because the, my boss and my boss's boss, you know, they weren't the most, um, I guess, you know, they really, really didn't focus on, on people development, okay. and I just felt a vacuum there. So I found some, a senior executive in marketing, and I approached him, and I said, hey, I have noticed how you interact with your team. I really admire it. I think I could learn a lot from you. You know, can you kind of be a, a, an informal mentor for me? And we developed a great relationship, and he helped. Um, there was an idea I had. He helped me implement it, and it saved the company, you know, millions of dollars. So, um, so it was a really successful relationship, I think.
1: <laughs> There's a lot in that
2: that I think is instructive,
1: so, but I want to anchor on um, – I just want to clarify a couple things first. So in science, rumor has it we also don't find a lot of women there, and it doesn't sound like the role models and the leaders that you
2: were encountering there were women either. I did not. Yeah, I, I mean, when I looked across senior management at, uh, in really any function, I didn't see uh, any women, really. <laughs> so there was just a complete absence of, of females. So what I did was I said, let me focus on people that I really admire their skills, and I see them in action, and I think I can learn something from them. So I kind of picked skill role models. And I had, you know, a number of them. And I, you know, when I saw somebody who I thought was really talented, I would, you know, try to get to know that person and try to learn from them and try to also contribute to them. But uh, I always tried to make those mentoring relationships two-way relationships, so I was also adding value, and uh, I think that really served me well. It's interesting that you note that uh, the way that you went about it, because um, I feel sometimes like
1: finding a, a mentor is like finding true love. You're looking for chemistry, and you hope it. You just wind up in a mentoring relationship, but often we really need to seek them out. There are ways that we can do it that are awkward and clumsy and not fruitful, and then there are some ways to make them a little more effective.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, talk to me about how you first approached these people that you saw that you wanted to learn from. Well, my boss, actually in the science division, he um, held a contest and he said, "I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to take the the top, I think, three ideas for new products to, you know, the new head of R and D." So he said, you know, anybody can enter an idea, and you know, being an overachiever, I entered you know a dozen ideas. <laughs> and uh, later on, I was in his his um, secretary's office, and uh, I noticed that she was retyping my list. And I said, oh, that's my list. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, you know, Bob asked me to retype it. And I I looked on the screen, and he had she had retyped it. But she put his name on the top. So I said, wow, this guy is actually presenting my ideas as his own. And that really... That's kind of slimy. It was terrible. So I, I, you know, and I'm a very direct person, so I, you know, I calmed down a bit and then I went into his office and I said, look, I, I kind of became aware of, of this situation and I'm very uncomfortable with it and I don't think it's right. Good for you. And how old were you when you were doing this? I, this was my first job out of college. So you were, what,
1: 22, 23 <laughs> I, years old? I think
2: it was 21, yeah. And uh But he said, so
1: I wanna applaud the courage
2: and how self possessed you were. <laughs> or maybe a little foolish too. <laughs> Thank you. But uh he said, Well, um your boss's boss and this is how I do things. So, you know, like it or not. And so then I went to another senior scientist and I said, Hey, I'm I'm in this situation, can you help me out? And he said, you know, basically, he said, "Sure, I'll help you out if you do something special for me." And I said, "Oh, okay, you know, special research project, something like that." And he said, "You know, no, I want you to sleep with me." <laughs> <laughs> that kind of special. Yeah, I said,
1: "Wow." He really said that that overtly.
2: He did, and I said, "But you're married. Why do you need me to sleep with you?" I was so you know naive, and uh, and I thought, "Okay, I'm not going to get any help from this guy." I said, "No, thanks. Don't don't want to. Not no interest in doing this, your special project." And so, <laughs> I happened to be in a meeting with this you know senior marketing executive, and I just. I thought he was really smart, and I saw how he interacted with his team, and he would give credit to people, generous credit for their ideas. So I went to him, and I said, I really you know, admire what you're doing and how you, you treat your team, and I'd love to you know, develop a mentoring relationship with you.
1: Well, it's heartbreaking to realize how early in your career you countered that kind of harassment
2: mm-hmm. and lack
1: of integrity. It is heartening to see that you were tuned in and that you found somebody who was a person of character.
2: Yeah, I think one of the key lessons that I learned was you just have to be resourceful. And if you are surrounded by people who are not going to help your career, it's up to you to find the people who will, will help your career, and you've got to be proactive about it.
1: So you joked a minute ago about maybe you weren't so smart. But in all seriousness, when you, if you were giving advice to young women or any women, anybody who's early in their career so they don't have power within the organization and they're starting to encounter... Those kinds of situations, um, would you do the same thing again, and what advice would you give somebody for how you confront somebody in those moments?
2: I think you know I would still do the same thing again because I think I was brought up to uh, just if I saw some kind of injustice or some you know something that was unethical to speak up and so i just i didn 't feel like I could have kept silent about that and, and I think across the rest of my career i haven 't been able to either. But I think uh, what would have been helpful would have been to maybe talk with some of the other women because actually what I found out later was some of the other female scientists were um, also encountering the same issues.
1: Yeah, It's usually a pattern.
2: Yeah, and I didn't even – I thought it was, you know, isolated an isolated situation. So I, I think I would have tried to find more support across, you know, other female scientists and maybe come up with a solution together that mm-hmm. we could work on. So, um, yeah, I mean, my advice to anybody starting out in their career is, you know, you have to be clear about what is acceptable to you and what isn't, and you know, and what situations you are going to you know be comfortable with or not. And you've got to speak up, and uh, you know, look for uh, opportunities to to build support your support network around you. So, speaking of building a support network, you arrive at Wharton,
1: which we know gives everybody who comes here an amazing support network. But you arrived here already an accomplished creative scientist and um, emerging with a business
2: framework for mm-hmm. the way that you were looking at things. For you, what was Wharton about and how did you approach it? Well, Wharton was really about um, learning an opportunity for me because I was making a career shift. And so I would not have been able to make it without coming to Wharton. And I was also very young when I came here. I was only two years out of out of college. And, and most
1: of our MBA students are four or five years out of yes, college.
2: Yes, yes. And so when we were in class discussions, I learned a lot from my, my colleagues because you know they would talk about situations where they had difficulty managing a team. And I just, you know, I I saw it was a great benefit for me because I learned from the professors and I learned from the other students. And just, you know, working on the team projects together, it helped me learn how to manage, you know, a team, how to you know, create a unified uh, kind of approach to things. And um, I just, you know, I had a great experience. I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about, you know, how to manage people. And, um, you know, I was able to make a career shift because of Wharton. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, And I'm talking with Wharton alumna Shaz
1: Kong. And This is our special reunion radio edition of Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And part of the whole spirit of this weekend is celebrating, you know, what does education do for us? How does it launch us? Um, And the value of coming back to reflect on all of this years later. So, Shaz, I'm thrilled that you're here with us today. Happy to be here. (laughs) So as you were going through your Wharton experiences, particularly your internships and getting ready to launch your career, where were you aiming at this, because as you're here you're changing your focus, um, you're learning all this stuff, you're meeting these people. Where did you want to go?
2: Well, I knew I wanted to run a business or run a company someday, so I really focused on rounding out my skill set and learning everything I could and I talked to a lot of people who were already you know kind of almost in the position of running companies or had run their you know family businesses. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to, you know, be a sponge and absorb as much information as possible and, you know, learn from other people's mistakes. So, um, you know, when I, when I left Wharton, I, I feel like I had a good arsenal of knowledge to at least, you know, start the process of preparing myself to run a business or run a company.
1: So when you think about of the early work that you did, um, what gave you the tools, built the muscles that you're using now in business? Is there any, like, what do you think of as the things that most equipped you for the kind of work you're doing now? Well,
2: I think, you know, the, especially some of the classes that I had at Wharton, the professor would share information, but I think, you know, some of the really great professors invited uh, just critical thinking, um, discussion, and, and disagreement about things. And so I really appreciated that. And I think, that kind of uh, critical thinking, critical review of content um, helped me when I went into new situations. I Basically, after Wharton, I started my career in consulting because I thought it would give me the broadest exposure to business problems. So I think the critical thinking ability combined with my scientific um, skills of problem solving were really good combinations. And I think even today when I'm approached with a new situation, I really try to think of it in different ways. I try to think of it critically. I also think, you know, is this this the way that everybody does it? Why does it have to be done this way? So I think being at Wharton really helped me um, just enjoy the love of learning and be a student, and I've I've continued to be a student in all of the experiences subsequently.
1: It also sounds like you've continued to take on some pretty substantial challenges that um, we could oversimplify as calling them business problems as opposed to business opportunities. Even mm-hmm. though I think part of what you did was to try and find the business opportunities and the problems. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to learn about your experience, why you choose to do these, what you've learned from them. But I want to start with a concept that I think has been getting some air time lately about the glass cliff. You know, we talk a lot about the glass ceiling for women. And um, the question of whether women are invited to take on roles in companies and organizations that are in trouble, because, well, nobody else wants to do that. We'll let them jump off the cliff, and then you're doubly tested. Mm -hmm. So you've walked into a few situations Mm -hmm. that needed some very strong, capable leadership. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about why you chose to do them, and do you think this concept of the glass cliff related
2: That's an interesting, yeah, It is an interesting concept and interesting (laughs) question. Uh, I think, you know, probably the the first experience I had was when I was at Nike. I was recruited to Nike, and I negotiated to be able to run a business um, at some point uh, before I came on board. So I was asked to – actually, I was asked to take a look at the global cycling business. They had been really having trouble. It had been run for six or seven years by a professional cyclist. And they said, can you fix the marketing? And so I took a look at it. And I said, you know, I'll come back to the CEO, the co-presidents, and I said I'll come back and let you know. So I said, yes, I can fix the marketing, but that's not what the problem is. The problem is the business is broken. The strategy is, you know, the wrong strategy. They're not focusing on the right consumers. There's a lot of problems with the product. I can fix the whole thing. So I said, you guys told me I could run a business. I think this is a business I can run. So they put me in charge, and uh, it was very challenging because the most of the team was male. And I remember going around to meet everybody, and everybody asked me the same two questions. They said, number one, what do you know about the business of cycling? And number two, what do you know about the sport of cycling? And I was very honest. I said, not much. But I do know how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> but they did not appreciate that joke. Uh, but, you know, I said, look, I, I know how to run a, a business. I know how to, you know, I know how to turn around a business. I know how to turn around a brand. And I'm going to learn about the cycling stuff from you guys. So let's right. let's work together and, and, you know, turn this around. And people were very resistant. And it actually, it actually kind of uh, gave a hit to my confidence. And then I just took a step back and I said, wait a minute this is the same team that's work, been working on this business for seven years. They've never made a cent. Surely I cannot do any worse. So <laughs> I said, I'm just going to go for it. So I was like, all right, this is what we're going to try. And I did a lot of things to get these guys out of their comfort zone. I um, approached the different the, the business in a completely different way and uh, got them to appreciate a different point of view. And I had a few quick wins. And I think once we got some momentum built – I was able to maintain that credibility and build it over time, and we got the business profitable within a year, and we grew revenues 300%.
1: That's pretty amazing,
2: Shaz. Thanks. I was pretty happy.
1: (laughs) Appropriately so. So I want to – Break some of it down because I want to explore some of it to understand it more deeply. Um, I'm a big believer that when you're hiring, there are things that you can teach people. There are things that you can't teach people. You want to hire people for the things that you can't teach. Mm -hmm. And the things that you can teach, you could teach them. Mm -hmm. Like you could learn about cycling. Mm -hmm. Um, How, if you were going to give advice to your former self about how to help the people in the organization
2: see that you could learn that, what would you What kind of advice would you give? I probably would have studied all the, you know, sprinters and climbers in cycling (laughs) and thrown out a few names before I uh, took the job. But I mean, I did read every magazine on cycling and, you know, every sports magazine. And, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I thought I'm never going to, you know, outmaneuver or outknowledge these guys in, you know, their knowledge of the, you know, the history of these different athletes, these different cyclists, you know, the different bicycles, you know, all of the different. So I was like, yeah, you know, I can study it and, and I can learn it. But I think the best thing for me to do is help them figure out, you know, what's wrong with the business and how to look at it in a way that they've never seen it before. And actually my first meeting with them I I called a cross-functional meeting, we had a huge conference table, and we also, the business had the highest apparel returns in the company. So I said, why do we have such high returns with apparel? And people said, I don't know. So I, I laid out about 30 pairs of cycling shorts on the table, and I said, you know, I held up like an iPod Nano or iPod Shuffle, and I said, okay, I'll give this, this is a prize to whoever can correctly guess the size of all of these shorts on the table. Some were huge, some were tiny. So, you know, people were like, extra large, small, extra small. You know, we went down the line. And I said, guess what? They're all medium-sized. I said, we're not using standardized sizing specifications or fit blocks. That is why our returns are so high. And, you know, people were like, wow, we – we didn't realize that, and I thought, you know, all right, I'm a new person, and this is my first meeting, and I just showed them something about their business that they had never considered
1: before. So it makes me think that part of learning about cycling, that some of it was to be conversant about the business, but some mm-hmm. of it was really about building social trust more than it was enabling you to do the job more effectively than you would otherwise
2: yeah I think part of it was yes you definitely you know had to show that you knew you had knowledge about the, the business cycling business and the sport but I think the other piece of it was you had to you know uh, and I call it ABC always always be confident you had to bring this confidence and knowledge and share that and and have these guys kind of step back and say wait a minute this person is talking about something that i've never seen before and i've never looked at the business this way before and you know maybe they've got something to offer and i should listen and i think Doing that, I mean, you know, doing that consistently and just, you know, being persistent about continuing to do that uh, really helped me break through. And you know, and I, there was one guy, guy in Europe who, you know, he would he was supposed to be on our conference calls, and he and he would say, oh, I'll be on the call, and then he wouldn't show up, and you know, he was driving me crazy. So I, I went to Europe. I, I was like, what event is he going to be at? I showed up at the, at the event. I didn't tell anyone, and I was like, hey you know it's me and he said oh and he said wow i you know i wasn't expecting you and i was like yeah i thought we could you know sit down and talk about the business and and cuz he was like oh you know i'm running europe and you know um you you're running you know other stuff it just i said well i'm actually running the global business so we need to work together to make it successful and he said oh it's already su- successful in europe and i said actually it's not it's not profitable we're losing money so we need to make it you know make it make money And I said, you know, tell me what your ideas are. Here's what I'm thinking. And I think the reason why he had been so resistant was because his ideas weren't solicited before that. So um, he felt very, you know, just protective, I guess, of Mm -hmm. his business. And I think once he saw that, you know, it was going to be a much more collaborative atmosphere, he was more open. So he ended up being one of the biggest contributors. And, you know, he did a fantastic job. And, you know, we still keep in touch to this day. It's uh, fascinating to hear about the,
1: the confidence arc. That, and I appreciate your candor in saying that there were parts in the beginning that were hard, but ABC, always be confident. Talk to me more about that.
2: I think, especially in a very male dominated industry or company. And if you're a woman leader, I think if you come in and say, oh, the first thing you say, hey, what does everybody else think? You know, what do you think I should do? What should the strategy be? Let's vote on it. You know, (laughs) you're going to get killed. So I think you have got to have a clear vision of, all right, this is where the business needs to go. You have to have ideas about the strategy that you want to deploy. You've got to have some innovative thoughts on how you can get there. And, you know, you've got to get people excited about it. And, you know, I said, this is a small business, guys. You know, we're under the radar. But I think we can be profitable, number one. I think we can be, you know, the number one brand in cycling in, you know, maybe a couple of years. And, you know, I said we can really do something that is extraordinary. And I said we can act as entrepreneurs within a larger company and, you know, and turn this thing around. So let's go for it. And I, I was able to get them motivated. And basically every single person I, I met with people individually and, you know, I, I would say like the marketing person, I sat down and I said, okay, here's 10 cycling magazines. You know, what is different about how people are presenting their brand? And are we doing it in the same way? Or are we doing it in some distinctive way? And so we, you know, we kind of brainstormed about it. And also we were we were actually um, in, introducing a brand new product And he said, oh, we'd have to wait until May. I said, why? He said, that's that's when everybody introduces new products. And I said, well, let's do it in January because there's no news (laughs) happening. We can get total coverage. We'll get in all the magazines we want. And, you know, we'll get a lot more buzz. So and we can start building interest, so we know what our sales could potentially be. So we did that, and you know, and so we just did a few things, different things like that that worked. And then you know, once we got that traction, people and I just said, okay, now now it's, you know, you run with it. You think of other ways to do this. So I, I think I was able to get people excited, so they were able to execute
1: in the spirit that there's. Um, nothing's funny without some truth to it. I always say, you know, that's the way we've always done it to me as a red flag to do it differently. And it seems like that was a big part of the culture change that you brought mm-hmm. in with you as you go in. And I'm guessing repeatedly as you walk into organizations that need to change quickly.
2: Yeah. I mean, we did. Uh, we were doing the Tour de France. We were sponsoring the Tour de France. And I you know, I said, do we have anything special? It's, you know, one of the biggest, atta- uh, biggest events that's attended by tourists. You know, do we have anything that tourists would like to buy? And they said, oh, We have, you know, T-shirts, replica jerseys. I said, why don't we do a bag? And they said, oh, you know, Shaz, that would take, you know, two years to do the bag. And I said, two years? And the cycle time at Nike was actually 18 months at that time, so it was pretty close. (laughs) But I said, it's a bag, you know. We should be – I know this was like end of February. And they said, we have to have the product in the stores by end of May. And so, you know, we didn't have that much time and I said, "Alright, well, I might ask you guys some of you guys for help." And people were like, "Forget it, you know, we're not going to do it." And so I I found a, you know, I found an early bag design from Europe. Uh, I found a a bag manufacturer that was already uh, Nike-approved and Quick Turn, and um, I had a few other guys help me, and we got this bag. Uh, It was embroidered and laser-printed, yeah, and we got the bag designed, developed, delivered to the stores in under two months, which was a record at Nike, and we priced it at 100 euros, and it sold out, and um, I also had a bag made up for each of the senior executives, and I said this bag was designed, developed, delivered to the stores in under two months, and these are the people who made it happen.
1: That's amazing. Yeah,
2: so people, I think the next time I had a crazy idea, people were like, oh, okay, Shaz, maybe that'll work.
1: Shaz, <laughs> <laughs> it's so inspiring and instructive to hear the way that you grew and the way that you framed change within these organizations. We don't have enough time to even start talking about your work as an author. Um, so briefly, we, only, we have barely a minute left. Um, if people want to learn about your book and get ready for the next one that you're going to write, where can they find you?
2: Uh, well, the book is called The Closer, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But uh, I also have a uh, website. It's uh, com. And the reason why I wrote the book was because I wanted to present women business leaders in a positive and inspirational light because I had not been reading any fiction where I was seeing characters that represented true people that I've right. With. You
1: see Cruella de Vil. You don't see Absolutely. amazing, creative game changers you. like yourself. Yeah, and you. Well, thank you. <laughs> And so um, when can we look for your next book on the shelves?
2: Um, it'll probably be holiday time, I think. Okay, I'm well, let us know when it's up. out. We can t- okay. continue to talk some more. Sounds I've great. been
1: thrilled to have you here. So what else are you going to do reunion weekend?
2: Uh, I'm just, I've just been enjoying connecting with friends and reminiscing about old times <laughs> and getting together with some professors. So it's been great. Well, and, Shots,
1: uh, thank you for taking time out of all that fun. To spend a half hour here with us on this Women at Work. It's
2: been my pleasure, Laura. Thank you.
1: Um, thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, you can email us at businessradio at seriousxm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm at Laura Zarrow. You can also find us on iTunes. A special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall. And I'm so excited to see my beloved sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, back in the booth. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to a reunion radio edition of Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business. Radio, powered by the Wharton School. There's something to
2: survive And yes, it's unbelievable When there's nothing left to hurt inside And we'll shine Yes, we'll